Hey there, everyone, and welcome back to the 1225 Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Sherman. And before we get started, I just want to give a massive thank you to everybody who downloaded the first episode. It was a huge turnout and way better than we were expecting, so thank you so much to everybody who downloaded it. It was absolutely awesome and encouraging. Hopefully you continue to listen, uh, and if you got any suggestions, feel free to email me, but just, you know, please be nice about it. So anyways, let's jump into tonight's, uh, tonight's episode. Uh, before we get started, let me just recap why we're named 1225. We get our name from Proverbs 1225, which says anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. And the one thing that we're talking about uh, specifically is the problem of anxiety. And we're defining anxiety as anything that adds spiritual, mental, emotional, and or physical weight to our lives by pulling us away from the joy, love, and grace found in Jesus Christ. Essentially, anxiety is anything that's designed to attract our attention from Jesus and then trap us in a continual cycle that brings about destruction. It, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Anxiety is a trap. And it originates from the spirit of fear. And the spirit of fear is one of his greatest weapons is anxiety. Anxiety is an attention getter. It's a noise generator. And we talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about silencing the noise of distraction in our lives. And we focused on the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10, 38 through 42. But anxiety is specifically designed to pulse away from the uh, presence of Jesus by putting our attention on our problems. We saw this specifically with Martha, where it says Martha was distracted with all her preparations. That word distracted there, perispo, actually means to draw away. So she was drawn away from the presence of Jesus with all her preparations. There's noise that is created, and anxiety creates that noise, getting us to focus on everything else we need to do rather than our Savior. And then we also know that the noise of distraction from anxiety will attack us even while we're in the presence of Jesus, but we have the promise of Jesus that we see with Mary in the same story, that he protects us from that noise. But that continual, that continual noise that anxiety creates are those what-if scenarios. And that what-if scenario is a slippery slope that is continually building. It continually garners attention because it's always focusing on another what-if. It's always focused on the future. It's always garnering our attention towards, well, what if I don't get this done? Well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? The what ifs and the problem of the what ifs is where that noise really comes into play and how that distracts us. It turns our attention towards us and how we need to be able to prepare for those what ifs and whatever situation we happen to face. It creates selfishness. So that's how anxiety distracts us. But tonight I really want to focus on how anxiety binds us and what kind of bondage does anxiety bring. There's three really forms of bondage that we see through anxiety, and it all creates one element, but it's worry, fear, and stress. And we witness these three occurring, and especially if you think about the what if. What if the financial market continues to collapse and I don't get my job back? Or what if the economy continues to fail and and my paycheck continues to diminish? What if my family gets sick? You're worried about the outcome of the what if. You're fearful of the actual what if coming to place. 
And then because of that, you stress over how you can handle it. There's actually effects on the body that have been studied by this stress that comes about. And some of the effects on the body include depression, immune deficiencies, a loss of sleep, rapid aging, anger, weight fluctuation, or extreme isolation. But how does it bind us? How exactly does anxiety get into our lives and bind us? Well, it does that by creating a bubble of bondage around us. Anxiety continually changes our focus onto the next problem we happen to be facing. And we used this example the last episode, but I want to bring it up this time, where it's, what if the financial crisis continues to happen? What if I lose my job? What if I can't pay my bills? What if I can't put food on the table? What if I lose my house? That constant anxiety surrounding this situation will continue to grow and fester and change and format. And it puts this little bubble of bondage around us because now we're trapped within that cycle of what if. And that little bubble that it creates is almost impenetrable. But this is where selfishness comes about because the bubble of bondage creates a selfish environment. We get so wrapped up in these, in this scenario, in these what ifs and that slippery slope and that bubble continues to form and develop that it keeps our focus centered on what we need to do in order to overcome these anxieties. So we try to solve our own problems. It turns our attention inward rather than looking to God for the solution. Remember Martha. She was distracted drawn away by all her preparations. Even though Jesus was in the room, she was so caught in this bubble of bondage that she couldn't recognize that Jesus was there. And she got so convinced and distracted by everything that she had to do that she was missing the very presence of God. But the problem is, is we can't solve the problems. There's an endless supply. The future is always riddled and filled with all of these issues and all of these supplies. So we continually try to push forward and try to solve these, but there's an endless supply of them. And then realistically, we can't solve them anyway. So we begin to look for temporary relief. We begin to try to find things that will give us a sense of relief from this bondage or from this, uh, from this anxiety that keeps dwelling up inside of us. And we tend to look towards different elements that will provide a little bit of that relief for us. Some of these may include alcohol, medications, sex, pleasure, or escape. But the problem with these reliefs are they're temporary and they dull over time. We have a tendency to dive deeper into these reliefs until they themselves become a problem. An example of this that can very easily be understood is, let's talk about alcohol. Oh, I'm just having a drink to take the edge off. Nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. But then as you start to take that edge off and you begin to realize that, hey, that, that did help. That was a temporary relief. Then it becomes, well, anytime I'm stressed, now I want to have a drink. And then after that, well, I've got built up a tolerance, so I need to have a couple drinks. And soon what started out as a drink just to take the edge off every now and then it very quickly become drinking all the time anytime you're stressed. And what started out as one drink has now turned into a bottle. What was a relief has now become bondage in and of itself. 
And that's the trap or the cycle that is created through these different anxieties. It's meant to get you to focus on trying to overcome these anxieties, to then get you a source of temporary relief that in itself becomes a bondage later on that then you have to go try to seek a relief from. It's a constant cycle and a constant trap. So anxiety leads to bondage. Bondage leads to selfishness. Selfishness equals sin. And sin brings about affliction. The bubble of bondage created by anxiety is designed to get us to sin. That's the whole point. It is designed to get us so focused on ourselves that that selfishness becomes sin. Selfishness equals sin. Because selfishness is anything that is forcing ourselves to the hierarchy and diminishing God. Sin is anything we do say or act upon opposite of God. And sin creates affliction in our lives because it brings upon the penalty of sin as found throughout Scripture. Well, you may be asking, what's the penalty of sin? Psalm 38, 3 through 8 states the following. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head, and my heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am bemoaned and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. There's physical, mental, and spiritual consequences to our sin. The psalmist writes it right here. There is no soundness in my flesh. There is no health in my bones. A heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh. I am bemoaned and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation in my heart. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So yes, the penalty of sin is physical, mental, and spiritual anguish, ultimately leading to death. Sin brings about affliction. And the affliction we face in our lives are a direct result of the sin in our lives. And there's two kinds of sin that we actually need to talk about here. And this will be important later on. But there's two types of sin that we need to go over. Number one, there's a corporate sin. What do I mean by this? Well, corporate sin is anything that is not necessarily our action. But it's handed down through generations to us or it's brought about because of a congregational aspect. This includes original sin found in Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This could include generational sin, as explained in Exodus 25 through 6, that can be passed down three or four generations. Or this could be a national sin, and we see examples of national sin found all throughout the history of Israel, whether it's the, the struggles or the turmoils they face in Egypt or the wilderness 
to the penalties of exile that they faced, uh, explained by Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah. So there's a corporate sin. But then number two, there's also personal sin. And personal sins are selfish actions in deliberate opposition to God, elevating ourselves above him. In 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 9, Paul gives us a list of what some of these sins are. It says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into the households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. So Paul gives us a list of personal sins, and there's more, and we find these all throughout Scripture, but that personal sin, those selfish actions that elevate us above God, they place humanity, they place the needs of us, ourselves individually, above the direction of God. So I go back to it, Proverbs 12, 25, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. The noise of anxiety distracts us, but then the penalty of anxiety is the bondage and the affliction that we get. And the second attribute of a good word that we're talking about tonight is a good word breaks the bondage of affliction infecting our lives and heals the damage caused by sin. And we find this in John 5, 2 through 9, and then also verse 14. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, because as we go through it, you're going to see what happens to this man that Jesus encounters and how his affliction is broken. And it's a powerful testament into our lives today. So as we read this story, put yourself in the place of the man. It says, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your mat and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The reason I love this story, it's because it's got three very important points that we need to dive into. And point number one is Jesus saw the man. 
What we didn't read about is verse 1, and I want to go back and read that now, where it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't see the man sitting by the gate when nobody was there. No, let me paint the picture of the environment that this man was sitting in. The sheep gate is the gate that's right next to the temple, and it's the gate where all the animals used for sacrifices in the temple were brought through. This man was sitting right by there during a feast. So not only were there a number of animals being brought through for the sacrifices, but a number of people were also coming in. And Jesus was coming in with the crowd. So this man is now sitting under the midst of the heat, surrounded by thousands of people walking in and out. Imagine the noise. Imagine the stink of all the animals and the smell of their tongue being walked over and trampled over on foot and, and people sweating, trying to get these things in, these mar uh, the, the people in the market. The, the, the amount of distraction that was taking place around this man was great. And yet, Jesus still saw him. What environment are you in right now? What's surrounding you? What's that noise of distraction that is continually trying to pull you away or draw you away from this presence? Here's what I can promise you. Jesus sees you. Just like Jesus saw this man. The coolest thing about this as well is that Jesus wasn't distracted. Jesus saw this man and wasn't distracted by everything else around him because Jesus won't be distracted. Remember his response to Martha where he regained her attention. He said, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. Martha was trying to fix everything going on. She was trying to get all her preparations ready. She was being drawn away from Jesus and yet Jesus silenced the noise distracting her. Remember how he protected Mary, that when Mary was in his presence, he said only one thing is necessary, which Mary has chosen, and it will not be taken away from her. See, when Jesus sets his eyes on us, he's going to call us to him. And when he does, he's going to silence the noise that is distracting us, and then he's going to protect us when he tries to attack again. Jesus saw this man. Jesus sees us, regardless of the environment that we happen to be in, regardless of the noise trying to distract us, regardless of whatever's going on. And this includes when we try to distract Jesus so he doesn't see what's going on in our lives. A lot of times we have a tendency to sit there and try to create all these different distractions, thinking that somehow Jesus isn't going to notice what's going on when he does. Oh Lord, I go to church. I tithe. I worship, I pray, but I'm having an affair. Oh Lord, I serve you, I serve your people, but I'm swindling money from my company. Don't pay attention to that. Just focus on everything that I'm doing for you, but don't focus on the, on the wickedness. Don't focus on the affliction. We can't distract Jesus. Jesus sees us, just like you saw the man. And that leads us to point number two. 
Jesus comes up to the man and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Why would he ask a question? This question, that, that aspect of this story has, has long been a, a perplexing aspect that I have not been able to answer until I heard a pastor talk about it a couple months ago. And it was like a light bulb went on, and it's the simplest answer I've ever, uh, I could have ever imagined. Why does Jesus ask the man, do you want to be healed? Because Jesus was asking if the man was ready to give up his understanding of what he thought he needed to do in order to be healed and just accept the free gift of healing that Jesus was bringing him. Essentially, what Jesus was saying is, are you ready to truly trust me and be free? Do you want to be healed? got to ask, when, when we hear this question, how many times has Jesus asked us, do you want to be healed? Are you ready to let go of control, surrender to me, and just let me free you? And I wonder, and the man answers this for us in verse 7, but I wonder how many times our response is similar to the man's. And look at what he says. He says, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus, listen, I, I, I want to be free. I want to be healed. But when I try to go down to the pool here, I can't get in because no one's willing to take me. And even when I'm on my way or somebody's actually willing to help me, uh, some other guy steps down before me. So I, I can't be healed. The man gives an excuse. Jesus, I want, to, I want to be free of this addiction that I've got. I, I want to be able to let it go. But every time I try to get help or every time I seek counsel, I always fall right back into the trap. I relapse. Lord, I want to be faithful to my wife, but I have such a hard time lusting over other women or lusting over other men that I can't control my desires. I can't control my urges. And every time I try to seek counsel for it and I pray about it and I come to you, I, ju I just can't get over it. I'm trying Why give an excuse? Jesus didn't ask why. Jesus asked if he wanted to be healed, but why do we give an excuse? Well, much like the man in the story, I think our situation is actually very similar. And the reason we give excuses is because number one, we're conditioned by our, by our environment. Look at social media. On social media, it's very easy to create a lie of a presence that we have. Everything looks fine. Everything looks happy. Everything looks glamorous. We're taking these awesome shots and we're going to these awesome places and uh, we're, we're all living life to the fullest and we're posting things that we feel passionate about. But behind it all, what we don't see is the brokenness, decay, and destruction that's occurring in our lives because we don't want to admit that. We want to post the good. We don't want to admit the bad. We lie to make everything look fine because we're afraid to show our brokenness and our weakness. We're selfish because we only want to show the good without admitting the bad. Number two, we have a tendency to blame somebody else. Look at the man's response again. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. 
And while I'm going, another steps down before me. It's not my fault, Jesus. I try to get to the pool, but no one will take me. And even when I start to get there, somebody else steps down before me. So it's not my fault. It's not my fault. This is actually a form of reverse selfishness and the trap that anxiety creates by creating these these bubbles of bondage and these bubbles of affliction is that our selfishness allows us to see what other people do without actually reflecting on the inside of what we need to do. We always focus on how somebody else has done us wrong rather than focusing on what we need to do to try to make the situation better or the wrongs that we need to right. It's always somebody else's fault. Well, listen, I, I, I love my wife, but she's not meeting my needs. I want her to, but she's not doing. She just doesn't love me the way I need to be loved. And, and God wants us to be happy, right? So I, I deserve to go out and find my own happiness. I deserve to go out and, you know, and, and be happy and be free. So it's okay for me to have an affair because this person's meeting my needs. My wife isn't. It's not my fault. It's hers. I've heard that justification more times than I care to count. And that's an extreme case, but we can take it for a number of different other ones. It's not my fault or four words that truly show our selfish nature. And number three, you just don't understand. See, the problem with selfishness and the reason we give excuses is the fact that we just refuse to accept that anybody else may actually be able to understand what we're going through at different times. Well, yeah, that's how you responded, but you're not me, so you don't know me. I, I don't respond to things like that. We refuse to accept advice or sympathy, or empathy, because our problems are our problems. But let's go back to our story. Because while the man is giving an excuse, there's an important point in verse 6 that we need to focus on. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus knew. Jesus knew about this man's condition. Jesus knew about the affliction that this man had suffered for 38 years. And he knew about it before he asked him, do you want to be healed? See, the man tries to give an excuse as to why he hasn't been healed yet, but Jesus already knows the why. Look at verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I told you in the beginning there's two kinds of sin. There's a corporate sin, and there's a personal sin. Jesus' question to the man is, are you ready to be set free from the affliction of both these sins, of sin in general? 
because I have come to set the world free from sin. I am going to break the bondage of your affliction if you are ready, if you are willing to allow me to heal you. Jesus knows before he even talks to the man. Think about that. So the man gives his excuse, excuses, and Jesus still heals him. But why? The man didn't answer Jesus' question. In fact, actually, he did answer. And he said, no, Lord, I'm not ready to trust you. This is what I've got to do to be healed. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. Why does Jesus still say, get up? Which is point number three, by the way. Get up. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 says, For you formed my inward parts, and you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your books were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Why did Jesus heal the man? Why did Jesus tell the man to get up? Because Jesus made the man. See, Jesus knew the man. He knew where the man was sitting. He knew the affliction in this man's life. And he knew why it was in his life. And he knew that this man had rejected God by his sin. And yet, Jesus sat there and he looks at the man and he reaches forth his hand and he says in a voice that commands all of creation, he said to him, get up. Take up your mat and walk. Jesus came to break the bondage of affliction in this man's life. Jesus came to break the bonds of affliction in our lives. When Jesus spoke, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. The affliction was instantly healed. Verse 9, And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. See, when God speaks, it is done. The power of God's word is that when he says something, it is finished. The voice of God spoke. And at once, the bubble of bondage and affliction in this man's life was dissolved 
and he was able to walk free. But the man still had a choice. The man could have sat there not believing he was actually free. You might ask, why? Why would he still continue to sit there? Well, number one, there's comfort in affliction. As weird as that may sound, it's, it's miserable to be in affliction, but it's predictable. For 38 years, he lived this life. He knew exactly what was going to happen day in and day out. He knew exactly how the pain was going to be. He knew exactly how everything would have been done. What he didn't know is that if he got up, what are you going to do? What would you do? For 38 years, you've sat in the same spot over and over and over, hoping and hoping and hoping. And then when it actually comes, what do you do? How do you walk away free when you don't know what's out there? It's fear of the unknown, which is one of the ways anxiety and the spirit of fear deliberately tries to keep you in the bubble of bondage by being afraid of the unknown. Number two, a lot of times there's just a flat-out refusal to accept freedom. It's a disbelief in the power of God. Yeah, that may have worked then, but it's not going to work now. How can it? That was 2,000 years ago. Stuff like that doesn't happen now. You can't just pray and it's actually, it's actually gone. No, you got to take medication. There's counseling. There's other things like that. No, it can't actually be real. I don't believe in that superstition. I believe that the Bible is a good principle, but I don't actually believe it's true, that this stuff can happen. We'll get back to that one in just a minute. Number three, there's a sense of pride that comes about with affliction. Look at how much I'm suffering. Look at all these burdens. Look at the chains that I carry around with me on a daily basis. And yet, look at what I am able to do. I am, I am bound in this affliction, yet I am still able to stand up here and be a strong person. We have a tendency to brag about what we have to overcome and yet what we've achieved. So the man could have sat there. That would have been the easy choice. Thankfully, he chose the hard choice. In a small act of faith, Jesus says, get up. And the moment Jesus says that, at once he's instantly healed. And he chose to try to stand. 38 years of affliction, not being able to stand, not being able to work those muscles, not being able to work any of that. And yet he chose to try. And he was able to get up. He picked up his mat. And he walked away free. He surrendered a false comfort of the known for the total freedom of the unknown. We have a choice. There's a series of questions we have to ask in order to find out which choice we're going to make. And number one is, do we really believe in the power of the word of God? Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
See, the promises in the Bible are real. This word is living and active. The things that happened 2,000 years ago still can happen today because the promises that are mentioned in God's word are alive today because he spoke them. God spoke the Bible. So can you be released from your affliction? 100% yes. Because this word, God's word, is living and active. Where are you at? What do I mean by this? What kind of environment are you in right now? Is it noisy? Is it chaotic? Is it distracting? Is it filled with decrepit, dung-filled streets? Noisy populations of people? You can't seem to get your bearings. The heat is beating down on you. You're sweating. You're unable to move. You're stuck. Can you see Jesus looking at you? Because across the way is the Lord God Almighty standing there with eyes that pierce like the purest fire through the crowd and then silences the noise. He is staring right at you through the distractions, piercing the noise and penetrating the bubble of affliction around you. He sees you. Do you hear what he just asked you? Do you want to be you? He already knows the situation you're in. He's always known. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knew the days that you would be on this earth before earth itself was created. He knows you. And he's asking if you're ready to let go of your understanding for what you need to do in order to be free and accept his promise of total freedom. And then finally, are you willing to stand? Because there he is, standing before you. And with the voice that spoke the stars into their places, with the command that causes all of creation to bow before him, with the power to split the Red Sea and conquer death itself, and with the compassion of a father who puts you together before the beginning of time, he is saying to you, my child, get up. Take up your life and walk away free in me. It's up to you. Will you choose the false comfort of miserable predictability and decay found in the bubble of your affliction? Or will you accept the promise of true freedom and the glory of walking hand in hand with our Savior and Creator for all eternity by trying to stand. Let's pray. Lord, the afflictions that bind us are so heavy. And Lord, their weight can be unbearable. 
God, you are a God who breaks chains. And with your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord God, your word comes and penetrates those chains and shatters them and causes them to fall to the ground so that we can walk free in you, Lord God. A good word, your word, Lord Jesus, breaks the bondage of affliction in our lives and heals the damage caused by sin. And Lord, for that, we thank you. So to whoever out there, Lord God, is struggling with an affliction that they cannot get over, Lord Jesus, in your name, I pray, Lord God, that you would look at them, that you would say, get up, take up your mat, and walk, and that, Lord God, they would have the faith to merely try to stand. And Lord God, that as they do, the chains of that affliction would fall. And Lord God, an instantaneous physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual weight would fall to the ground, Lord God, fall down before your feet, and Lord God, they would be able to walk free in you. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. And thank you and praise you for all these things. In your name I pray. Amen. I want to thank everybody for joining us for episode number two. This is part two of a five-part series on a good word, and next time we'll be talking about uh, how a good word keeps us from pursuing a path of destruction by reminding us of the sovereignty of God. If you have any questions or if you have any prayer requests, please feel free to email me at 1225podcast at gmail.com. That's the numbers 1225podcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. Love to get your insight. Like I said, if you just need somebody to pray for you, pray for you, um, and you don't want to give specifics, that's fine. Just know that you will have somebody uh, praying for you constantly. So I want to thank you all again. And before we close, I just want to remind you that no matter what you are facing, no matter what you have been told, no matter how alone you may feel, and no matter what you happen to be going through at this very moment, always remember, you are loved. I'm Jordan Sherman, and this has been the 1225 Podcast. Thank you.